How does he offer a free beer sound to you? As a loyal listener of the show, we'd like to reward you with just that. Free beer. Courtesy of our friends at Beer52.com, you have the opportunity to sip eight free exclusive craft beers from around the world. All you need to do is go to www.beer52.com forward slash seeing red and cover just £4.95 for the postage. As an added bonus for Seeing Red listeners, sign up within the next two weeks and get two extra free beers. So that's a total of 10 free beers. Beer 52 traversed the globe to find the best and most interesting beer from the greatest small batch breweries planet Earth has to offer. Each month they deliver a case with a different theme. Themes have ranged from Germany to Korea, Norway to South Africa and even California to Finland, but they haven't forgotten their roots. As an independent UK company, Beer 52 are also passionate about the craft beer scene. And the beauty of Beer 52 is they don't hold you to ransom. There's no lock-in and you can leave any time. I've been a customer for 12 months now and let me tell you, there is no better feeling than arriving home from work to a fresh delivery from Beer 52. This month I have particularly enjoyed the Grand Slam, a brute IPA brought to us by Black's Brewery. I love strong beers and at 6% this one definitely hit the spot. Your first box will be sent to you next day and will contain beer from all over Europe. You'll also get the award winning craft beer magazine Ferment and if that wasn't good enough they also throw in a tasty snack. Just go to www.beer52.com forward slash seeing red to get your first case of 8 beers for free. And don't forget, sign up in the next two weeks and get an extra two unmissable beers free. That's www.beer52.com forward slash seeing red. That's the word beer, then the numbers 52.com. Hello and welcome to Seeing Red. I'm Mark. And I'm Bethan. And we have quite a long case for you today, so we are literally going to jump straight in. No chitter-chatter. So shut up and get <laughs> on with it. It's Bethan's turn, so go. Today's episode features a type of crime that we haven't covered yet, modern slavery. And I think it's very easy to assume that slavery isn't an issue nowadays, but it really is. It's a type of crime that I've wanted to cover for a while, but there were so many cases to think about and not loads of information available. So what I've decided to do is an episode that includes four mini-stories. Oh, mini-sodes. Yes. On Instagram recently, one of our listeners, Emily, messaged about a current case in the West Midlands that I will be looking at a little later on in today's episode. So thank you, Emily, for sharing that. I'm also going to be discussing a family who kidnapped vulnerable men, plus a commune. But first, cheap car washes. So hand car washes, the type you see in supermarket car parks or on forecourts, are a great way to get your car cleaned while you wait for a pretty decent price. The ones near me charge £7 for all of the outside of your car. And I think if you want the inside done as well, it's like 15 quid. Do you go to them? I've, I literally know the one that you mean. I've been to them <laughs> and it is 15 quid is inside and out. Is it 15 inside yeah. and out? I've definitely gone to them on a few occasions and I know I'm not alone because they're usually pretty busy. But there are loads of worries about these being a front for modern slavery. I know, but they're so cheap. Does it matter? By the end of this episode, you're going to know that the answer is I, yes. I am honestly <laughs> kidding. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so modern slavery as a concept generally discusses people who are forced into work after being promised a better life in a new country. Obviously, this is not the case in every example, as we will see later on in the episode, but generally, this is what happens. So the person applies for a job that they see advertised and they're promised a great life, but the job would include some recruitment costs or some travel costs and they're told they'll be covered, but you can pay these back. They honestly believe that they're going to be leaving their troubles behind, making some money, often thinking they can send this back to their families. But once they arrive in the UK, they are forced to work in terrible conditions and have no control over where they live. They often have their passport confiscated and are threatened with violence. All their families back home are threatened. And there are also threats about being reported to the police for working in the UK without the correct documentation. And language barriers can create such a large environment of fear. Currently, it is estimated that 40 million people are in modern day slavery around the world. 
and one in four victims of modern-day slavery right now are children. That's terrible, isn't it? Isn't that really shocking? 40 million people right now across the world. And when we look at the hand car washes, we can see just how this environment of slavery can be created in our world today. Numerous Romanian websites offer plentiful work for people who are willing to come across to the UK. However, the jobs they offer are not what the men find when they arrive. The hours are long, the work is tough, and the low pay is actually illegal. The pay rarely exceeds £50 for at least an eight-hour day. Um, The UK law actually says that workers over 25 years of age must be paid £7.20 an hour, which equates to about £57.60 for an eight-hour day. And generally, they don't even earn 50 quid. That's just like an exaggeration, really. One advert in Romania called for extremely hardworking people to work 10-hour days for £35 up to seven days a week. So this job advert included a £100 commission fee for arranging the job. So straight away, how are you going to pay that back as well when you're getting £3.50 an hour? Not only is the pay awful, but the workers are not allowed breaks. And they're quite often not provided with gloves to protect them from the cold and the wet conditions or from the chemicals that they're using. In their investigation, at one car wash in the car park of a Tesco store in London, the newspaper The Mail met Stefan. That wasn't his real name. They met him with a Romanian interpreter. So Stefan is 27 years old and he confirmed to them that he worked from 8am to 6pm every day, earning £40 per shift. And this is a direct quote from him. It is slavery, like 150 years ago. We are asked to clean hundreds of cars each day. We are not allowed to smoke or have breaks. Sometimes we are asked to stay for two or three hours overtime. The clients are normally fine, but in terms of money we are treated like slaves. You do get arguments and people shouting at you if you have your lunch. While he was working at another car wash in a different part of East London, Stefan was paid for only two days' work after he'd worked for five. When he asked for the rest, he was threatened with a beating. And at the same place as Stefan was the man that the paper called Marius, who is 25 and also from Romania. The two guys have partners and kids at home in Romania where jobs are quite rare And they know that they're quite unlikely to earn more than £200 a month. So when they heard about the UK, they thought, well, this is great, we'll come across. Marius said that he did know that the pay was illegally low, but they have no choice and they needed to make some money to send home somehow. Stefan also said one of his co-workers had become incredibly ill due to the terrible working conditions, but it's not like they were going to get sick pay. And he said, it's very cold and wet all day, so you're prone to getting ill. You cannot complain, otherwise they will sack you. And one man, when the Salvation Army looked into the conditions, was reluctant to remove his shoes. Anne Reid, the Salvation Army's Director of Anti-Trafficking and Modern Slavery, was meeting with cleaners who'd been rescued after police raided a car wash, and she spoke to this man. The consequences of days spent standing unprotected in used car wash water were particularly apparent because over time the harsh chemicals in the cleaning fluids had fused his shoes onto his feet and he hadn't been able to take them off for weeks. They had to be surgically removed. That's awful. The health issues of the job and the illegal pay are not the only ways in which the men are taken advantage of, so they're often offered lodgings by their new bosses. But as with the job, this is not as good as it seems. So the posters advertise people to come to work in England and work in a car wash for a better life. And the newspaper ads say, come and work, you'll get accommodation and you get paid. So it is really tempting. But once they get here, the situation's completely different. They're either given like a rubbish caravan or a flat and they're really unlikely to have running water, cooking facilities. There's usually rats and mice and... Or there could be like 40 of them to yeah, a terraced house. Exactly. Quite often the car wash will have the caravan on the site, so they're literally coming out of the caravan, going to work and going home. A really sad case from recent history features a man called Sandu Laurenti Sava, who was a 40-year-old Romanian man working at a car wash called Bubbles in Bethnal Green, East London. Sandu had left Romania for the UK in search of a better life. So he came over to the UK and was paid £40 a day, but he was then forced to pay £40 a week for accommodation that was provided by his Kosovan employer. The accommodation was horrendous, the photos are available online, it was dilapidated, cramped, rat-infested, and the men had even hung a number of car air fresheners around the lounge to try and mask the smell. 
He lived in the cramped conditions with five other workers above the car wash and they were so used to the dodgy electrics in the living area at the car wash because it was really badly wired that they actually said that they were used to having electric shocks when they stood in the shower. That's just, honestly, that kind of way of life, if you can call it that, you just can't comprehend it. No. And then that just becomes the norm for them. And I do understand why they would come here to and kind of accept earning £5 an hour because they're going to earn in a week more than they would earn in a month back home. It's horrendous, They're going to yeah. save that money still, or ideally that's what they're going to do, and then send it back home. Mm-hmm. But like you say, it just doesn't always work out like that. His boss and the owner of the flat had plugged extension leads and all sorts of things into the electrics and he'd kind of like tampered with the fuses to stop them from blowing so they'd be overworked and overpowered but he'd just do that anyway. And the electric meter at the flat was illegally bypassed as well so this guy wasn't even paying for the electricity. Sandu has been described as very kind and loving by his family and his brother has been quoted as saying, my brother was a kind and loving man, he was very family orientated, he was the kind of man who would give you the shirt off his back even if he may have nothing himself. Sandu was taking a shower in August 2015 when he suffered a deadly electric shock and died. Paramedics were called at 9.40pm on the 15th of August after Mr Sava collapsed in the shower. He was taken to the Royal London Hospital but was pronounced dead later that evening. So luckily, his boss and the owner of the flat that I talked about before was actually jailed for this. So... Shape Nimani was jailed for four years at the Old Bailey for manslaughter and he was also made to pay £20,000 to the victim's family. Sandu's family had been publicly calling for the strongest punishment for Nimani and his brother Marius said that he was devastated. He said, I could not and did not want to believe that such a terrible thing had happened. My brother and I were close and we'd speak at least once a month. My mother has been left shattered by what had happened. Sandu was her favourite son, he was also the youngest. Sandu would speak to my mum weekly and would send her money from the UK to help her. I feel my brother was taken advantage of and exploited during his time in the UK. He also said, It appears to me that the employment laws and rules and regulations in the UK are not strong enough and that more needs to be done to protect the welfare and the well-being of foreign nationals to stop incidents like this happening again. I feel like the strongest punishment should be given to shape Namani and for the justice for my brother and to send a message to other rogue employers that behaviour like this will not be tolerated. Interpreter Morella Watson, who has accompanied police on raids, has encountered workers earning as little as £10 a day and living on sites in sordid accommodation. She said that they would be quite reluctant to speak to the police because a part of their upbringing was that they would fear the authorities. But luckily after time, they would open up and speak to her about what was going on. And she said, we found slavery, human exploitation. The workers felt trapped and believed that they couldn't do anything better because mainly a lack of English. They didn't know where they could turn for help. They weren't provided with any protective clothing and their hands were horribly cracked. The wages were so low that they couldn't afford gloves and they were working all day in wet boots. They barely got time to eat and the boss kept all of the tips. They weren't allowed proper breaks. And at the end of the episode, I do have some information for people who might be listening today that could be worried about someone or a group of of people that they think might be vulnerable and being forced to work. So on to our next story. In Cardiff in 2016, a horrendous case of vulnerable men being forced to work for as little as £10 a day and sleep in sheds for over 25 years was brought to a close. In 2013, police uncovered a family who had forced two vulnerable men into working for them. Patrick Joseph Connors was the head of a traveller family in Cardiff and he, along with his son Patrick Dean Connors and nephew William Connors, kidnapped Michael Hughes when he was just 19. I feel like I've heard of this one. Yeah, this was major. This is a really tragic case if it's the one I'm thinking of. He was kept alongside another man who was identified as Mr K. The two men were made to sleep in sheds and caravans without heating or running water and during their days they were put to work as labourers for tarmacking and general building and they were threatened with violence if they tried to escape. Finally, nearly 26 years later, the family were brought to justice. At the trial, prosecutor John Hipkin told Cardiff Crown Court, Both men worked for Connors for many years in conditions that do not conform to that normal for an employee. 
They would be beaten and threatened, they worked long hours carrying out heavy manual labour and kept on Connor's property. They were kept in appalling living conditions in a shed, a tin hut, a garage, often without the basic facilities of heat or water. So how did this happen? Aberdeen-born Michael Hughes was taken into care as a toddler and was homeless when he moved to Wales in search of a fresh start at the age of 19. He started doing building work, but he was soon bought by the Connors family and put to work for them. He was made to live in a four-foot-wide garden shed that had no heating or running water, and this was for two years. He was beaten if he tried to complain or get away. He would be paid less than £10 a day, or he was just paid in tobacco and alcohol. The only respite came was when Mr Hughes was sent back to Scotland for unpaid fines and was put in jail and he said that prison was like a holiday camp compared with his ordeal in Wales. On release from custody, Mr Hughes was forced to return to South Wales by Patrick Joseph Connors. He made several escape attempts, and it was only after watching a TV news report about forced labour that he finally broke free for the final time. The other man, Mr Kay, suffered years of malnutrition and has actually developed osteoporosis, He still says that he constantly looks over his shoulder and feels like he's wearing invisible shackles. He had been frightened into submission for six years and in his victim impact statement he said, I kept things bottled up inside and resorted to cannabis and alcohol to block everything out. I was angry at the authorities who did nothing and at myself for getting sucked into this situation. It was only in the past couple of years that I realised there was such a thing as modern slavery in this country and that it shouldn't be happening. I've been receiving treatment for post-traumatic stress disorder. I've been diagnosed with a collapsed vertebrae and osteoporosis, which is attributed to malnutrition. I intend to soldier on, and I don't want people to feel sorry for me. I'm taking one step at a time. I want to get on with the rest of my life without looking over my shoulder. So the men would work hours, often from dawn until 11pm, and the work was hard physical labour. If they got sick or injured, they still had to work for fear of being beaten. They each did manage to escape. Um, Both of them managed to escape one time each, but they were hunted down, returned and beaten severely. When Michael managed to get away to Aberdeen, he went to his local dole office to sign on and the two Patricks were waiting there for him. They bundled him into the boot of their car and returned him to Wales. He said that when they got back to Wales, he was made to wait in the garage before Patrick used him like a punch bag and then booted him while he was still on the floor. He was then taken out of the garage and handed a telephone before being told, just tell these people it was your mates playing a practical joke. And on the other end of the line, it was the police. Michael had to tell them exactly what Patrick told him to say, otherwise he would have been beaten even more. But couldn't the police have actually gone round if they had concerns, concerns enough to call? Why would you phone if you were a copper? Wouldn't you just go round and have a look? I don't know, but I think if he's a grown man and he's saying, no, I'm fine... Mm. somehow they're getting away with and this. And I suppose he would have, they would have kind of almost like coerced him into saying that face-to-face yeah. anyway. Well, that's the other thing. Yeah. I do think that there were a lot of frustrations with the police with this. But I do think, again, uh, similar to what we say quite often, you're a grown adult, you can almost do what you want. And if the police ask you and you say, no, it's fine, they don't have any rights to carry on. And I think it's like you said, slavery... A few years ago wasn't really understood. People didn't think it existed um, anywhere really in the world. Whereas now there is a lot more awareness. And I've seen yeah. like posters advertising mm-hmm. to be aware of it. And I'm sure they're featured car washes, for example. Yeah. And there's a lot more laws and legislation now, which can Modern actually... Slavery Act. Yeah. I think we have to be, or we've had to be aware of that at work mm-hmm. before. So. Definitely. Employers now have yeah. a few more things that they have to do to show that they're trying to make sure people aren't vulnerable. Yeah. Mr. K tried four different times to escape, and his fourth time that he was successful, um, he got away, but they soon caught up to him, and they put him into the car, and he was so desperate to escape that he jumped out of the moving car into the path of an oncoming bus. I just cannot imagine being that desperate. It wasn't even just the work and their living arrangements that were so controlled by the Connors family. Michael at one point began a relationship and the woman fell pregnant, so Patrick actually convinced the woman's mother to make the girl end the relationship and have an abortion, claiming that Michael was a drug addict and an alcoholic. 
The family didn't just take advantage of the two men that they forced to work for them, but they also changed their prices to inflate them based on the vulnerability of the customer, a system known as boosting. Oh, I didn't know. I mean, obviously, I've heard of that. And you, yeah. you kind of accept that some people would will do that, but I didn't know it had an actual name. That's interesting. Boosting. boosting. So they'd go to certain people and say, well, tarmac your drive for this much. Yeah. And then if you were particularly vulnerable, I imagine if you were more of like an elderly person or something, perhaps, or if you looked like you had money, change the prices around. Beware the boosters. Yes. So after his arrest, Connors Sr. insisted that he had dealt fairly with both victims, saying he treated Mr. Hughes like a member of the family. But luckily, the jury just did not believe him, and on day three of deliberations, the men were all found guilty. Frustratingly, the actual crime of forced labour had only come in recently, so whilst Michael had been kept for 25 years, the charges for forced labour could only begin in 2010. So they were still done for it, but not for as many years. Patrick Joseph Connors was guilty of requiring another person to perform forced or compulsory labour between 2010 and 2013, eight counts of ABH and four of kidnap and one of conspiracy to kidnap. He was jailed for 14 years. Patrick Dean Connors was also found to be guilty of requiring another person to perform forced or compulsory labour and was guilty of kidnap, but not conspiracy to kidnap, so he was jailed for six and a half years. William Connors was found guilty of requiring another person to perform forced or compulsory labour between 2010 and 2013, but none of the assault charges stuck with him and he was jailed for four years. And then there was another guy called Lee Carbis, and I believe he wasn't a family member. He was like a friend of the family. He was found guilty of kidnap, but not the requiring someone to force uh, to perform forced or compulsory labour. So he helped them in getting the guys back, but he wasn't necessarily the one who was forcing them. He was jailed for two and a half years. So after the verdicts, Mr. Hughes said that he was over the moon and happy to have his life back. He said, quote, With the help and support of my family, I am now rebuilding my life. I am getting out and about and meeting new people. I also have a job, which is helping me make new friendships. And in a victim impact statement, Michael Hughes said, I feel like not only did they strip me of my early adult life, but they also moulded me into an unhappy man that felt worthless. They made me feel like I had nothing to live for. Every time I felt some sort of happiness, they tried to crush it. I detest the way that they've treated me. I've had counselling to overcome the pain I suffered and I'm now starting to believe in myself for the first time in a long time. I plan to continue to improve my life and be the happy person I am now. I quite liked that. And a victim impact statement for Mr K said, and this is because he's still not publicly come out with his actual name or spoken to the papers, they said about him, he felt extremely paranoid and has constantly been looking over his shoulder out of fear at the prospect of repercussions or from running into the Connors. He has subsequently been diagnosed as suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder and has been prescribed antidepressants, which seems like such an understatement to me. And I wonder if, um, because he's so fearful of running into them, that's why he's not wanted his identity revealed? Yeah, just in case there's other family members that would still come after him, perhaps. Chief Superintendent Paul Griffiths of Gwent Police, who led the investigation, described the case as tragic, saying, These types of crimes have a lasting effect on the victims. It's not just the physical degradation, it's psychological too. It causes deep and long-lasting trauma. We will always ensure that anyone coming forward has access to the support services needed to help them rebuild their lives. In circumstances like this, victims live in fear of the people controlling them. This is why the help of the public is paramount. People in the heart of our local communities are often the ones who can spot the signs of exploitation and help those who are unable to help themselves. So the next case of modern slavery was again not solved for many years and in fact the women in question were not rescued until 2013 after being kept there up to 30 years. It has aspects of the Joseph Fritzel case or Ariel Castro, both cases I'm sure our listeners will know at least a little bit about. Um, And I wonder if it's something that we might look at when we rebrand. Ooh, yeah. I think it would be interesting cases to cover both of them. Um, They're cases I don't know loads about, but I know the basics. The case is a terrifying one that began with a political movement slash thought commune 
that was led by... Now, this is where I'm going to struggle because I do not know how you say his name. Aravindan Balakrishnan. I'm going to go with that. Sounds okay to me. After being raided by the police in the 1980s, he took this commune underground and he was the leader of this Workers' Institute of Marxism-Leninism-Mao Zedong Thought. But once he moved this into this secret location, his control over his followers changed from just being a leader to basically making it into a prison for his followers. There were three women who were rescued from the commune in 2013. They were 69-year-old Aisha Wahab, 57-year-old Josephine Herival, and 30-year-old Katie Morgan Davis. So I did try and find out a bit more about the political party and their ideas, just because I wanted to understand a bit more about what he was trying to preach at the beginning, and I could not understand a word of it. I don't think I'm very political and I don't know, it's just not me. I'm not really into that sort of thing. So basically this guy was quite revolutionary in his thinking and people did follow him because the communist sort of party were enough of a revolutionary but then he kind of took things a bit further, I think. He kind of reminds me, like any other sort of cult commune leader, Jim Jones, etc., He was very charming and enthralling and the women did flock to him and want to know more. They almost have to take on that kind of like godlike persona, don't they? Mm -hmm. In order to get that following, it has to be this, you know, like complete, I don't know, like head of everything and you will obey me kind of thing. That is definitely what happened with this guy. That's how they get the control. Yeah. If anybody does want to look into this further... It was the Workers' Institute of Marxism-Leninism-Mao Zedong Thought and formed by him in 1974 after he was expelled from the Communist Party of England. Try saying that with your mouth. Oh my goodness, that was a struggle. So if you do want to look into it and if you want to give me like a basic overview of what the hell this was all on about, I would love that. Two sentences or less to explain it would be lovely, but it's really, really intelligent. Not me. At first, many of the members lived in a commune that was based at his headquarters, but following that police raid, his intensifying control over his followers meant that the commune kind of changed address loads of times because he had to keep them in control. The first woman I mentioned, Aisha, is a Malaysian woman who moved to the United Kingdom at the age of 24 to study. She was reportedly so drawn in by his Marxist rhetoric that she left her fiancé and moved in with the collective. The second woman I mentioned was Josephine, and she was also known as Josie. She moved to London and disowned her family in the 1970s after she got heavily involved in their political way of thinking. Bit of a fun fact, her dad was actually one of the Bletchley Park codebreakers. Only fun fact of the whole episode. It's not even that fun. Really? I thought you were going to say he's like a film star or someone famous. Bletchley Park codebreakers are famous. Yeah, they are, but we won't know his name. (sighs) But, you know, thanks for what you did in the war and shit. (laughs) So these two women were really interested in what he had to say and joined the commune of their own free will. But soon they became prisoners in the house, not necessarily physically restrained, but they described their life as being lived in invisible handcuffs. They were subject to brainwashing, emotional abuse, as well as physical abuse and threats of physical violence and abuse by... Balakrishan and his wife Chanda. You love picking these cases with all these. <sighs> I didn't mean to. Names. I didn't mean to. If I'd thought about it, I would have changed it. I can say Connors. The women weren't allowed medical treatment, had very limited contact with the outside world, and they were made to feel like there was no escape available for them. Although the women were not kept permanently in the house, their access to the outside world consisted of they were allowed to hang out laundry or occasional shopping trips, and quite often they would be accompanied by Chanda. The third woman who was rescued was Katie, and she was actually born into the commune and she'd never experienced much about life outside of the home. She was originally named Prem Mayodpudunsi Davis when she was born in 1983, and she is the daughter of Blarat Krishan and a woman called Shan, who I'm going to tell you about shortly. Katie began calling herself Rosie in her teens, 
before later on release choosing the name Katie Morgan Davis herself, and that was after Katy Perry, the pop star. Oh, that's cool. Um, it reminds me of that film. I can't remember what it's called. It's an M. Night Shyamalan film. Mm. Is it Signs? Is it that one where um, it's like this whole kind of community live on this... Oh, The Village. The Village, yeah. that's it. Oh, my God, Retro, yeah. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. yeah, totally Retro. But it reminds me of that where... Can you imagine being born into that? You would mm-hmm. think that is your world. Yeah. And you would just kind of believe everything that you're told to try and then sort of uncondition that. Yeah. When somebody is freed from it. Must, Can you it's imagine? basically impossible, I At guess. At the age of 30 as well oh, was when she got that's just unreal. Released. And it's a bit like you sort of mentioned some of those victims that had been kidnapped mm-hmm. in sort of, you know, like Austria, etc. Um, you know, obviously uh, some of them had children in captivity yeah. and those children grew up to be teenagers in captivity never seen daylight and again you just think god like what must their perception of the world have been like and how must it have felt when they actually tasted freedom yeah or what to them they wouldn't have even known that was freedom it would have just been this really scary world i don't know exactly like katie had never gone to a dentist or a doctor she didn't actually know who her parents were um she was kind of brought up by the commune as a whole There were two women who we know about, I say that because we don't know for definite if there were more victims of Black Krishan. So Shan, Katie's mum, joined the commune in the early 80s. She had a relationship with him and fell pregnant and then had her baby in the commune. And she wasn't really classed as her mum. The, The baby was then just brought up by all the women there. She tried to escape from the commune And when she was caught, she was bound and gagged on the lounge floor as a punishment. And Katie actually saw this, not necessarily knowing it was her mum, but knowing it was somebody from the family. And later, she actually fell out of a top floor bathroom window. This was one of the rare occasions where one of the women was actually taken to hospital. But in hospital, she suffered a rapid decline in her mental health and fell into a coma and died eight months later. The family were told that she had gone to India for charity work and no one was told the truth of her death. And I wonder if, you know, part of that death was caused by, I don't know, like almost just being sort of exposed to the real world, like yeah. germs and and all of that. I don't know, it's like it's weird, isn't it? Like maybe she got into hospital from having, you know, she. it sounds like she tried to escape out of that yeah, window. Yeah, it does, yeah. In hospital then, she's just kind of like, well, if I get better, I'm going to go back there. yeah. She might have just almost, like, given up. Maybe. There was also a woman called Okar Eng, who was a nurse from Malaysia who had followed him since the 1970s. In 2001, she hit her head on a cupboard and suffered a stroke, but sadly she wasn't allowed to get medical treatment, and so she died. Balak Krishan and his wife didn't tell the police or Okar's family, and they kept her ashes in a lockup nearby. Um, have you ever thought about sort of like running away and joining a commune as a way of like getting out, going to work and stuff? <laughs> no. I'm just like opting out. I've definitely thought of have it. Have you? I've literally thought I could just join a commune and then I wouldn't have to go to work. I know that you used to talk about randomly one day just getting on a flight and just going on holiday rather than coming to work and just ringing me and just being like, I'm on holiday now and then you just don't come back and to I'm the never UK. Back, yeah. yeah. I still think that every time I go on holiday. Yeah. You're not. You're going to have to like rein in the holidays. By the way, when you're doing the podcast on your own for a couple of months, I can't. I'm I'm off to Monaco, then New York. Disgusting. Sorry. We'll cancel the flights for you. Don't worry. Sorted. In October 2013, Josie and Aisha were watching a TV show about forced marriages in the UK that was on ITV called Forced to Marry. Josie was already getting worried about Katie's rapid weight loss and ill health but obviously knew that the younger woman wouldn't be seeing a doctor anytime soon. So what she did is she memorised the free phone number at the end of the programme and contacted astonished welfare workers. When she had this chance to kind of call the helpline secretly, she said that she required their help. She didn't say initially that actually she was being kept hostage or anything like that, but she said that somebody that she was living with, a friend, needed help, had had a stroke and had no way of getting help and getting out. There were a few calls kind of back and forth with the helpline um, and then that's how they established that basically these women had been kept captive for up to 30 years. The police were able to identify where the house was and set up some clandestine meetings. They gave the charity set times when they were able to speak to them. 
So then the charity would call them at these specific times when they knew that the couple wouldn't be around. And basically the charity made a plan that they could walk out of the property when there would be police on standby. The charity said the women had described their claimed captors as the heads of the family and they said that they were living in a state of terror, feeling like they were in massive danger at any given second. The neighbours knew nothing and for all intents and purposes it was just an ordinary house in an ordinary street. So after the initial phone call on the 18th of October in 2013, the charity kept in touch with the police and with the women and on the 25th they were able to stage a raid on the property and save the women. Detective Inspector Kevin Hyland from the Met's Human Trafficking Unit said, We've established that all three women were held in this situation for at least 30 years. They did have some controlled freedom. The Human Trafficking Unit of the Metropolitan Police deals with many cases of servitude and forced labour, and we've seen some cases where people have been held for up to 10 years, but we've never seen anything of this magnitude before. So he described the women's leaving the house as excellent in the way that it happened. The police were absolutely thrilled, so it was great that nothing had gone wrong and nobody had been injured or killed. There was then a bit of a delay in arresting the suspects after the women were freed because the police really needed to fully understand the facts of the case. And the women were so traumatised, it was really hard for them to establish with definite what had happened. And also, I guess, they've almost got like no perspective. So although they knew it was wrong... They, I don't know, they would probably struggle to explain in normal terms mm-hmm. exactly what had happened to them and, well, yeah. uh, you know, and how that was wrong or they were just kind of dumbing it down, maybe, I don't know. And how would Katie say, I've never gone to school, I've never gone to nursery? When she doesn't know that it even yeah. exists. All of the people in the commune taught her to read and write. Yeah. So why would she know that that's different? And also, like, I'm not being, like, harsh, but I bet there were odd occasions where there were happy times. Oh, I'm sure there must have been. And they maybe celebrated birthdays. Yeah. It's all relative, isn't it? When you're living in kind of shit circumstances, the smallest things can be celebrated and can really make you happy and make your day. So they would have still experienced normal emotion in that regard, the positives and the negatives. And I think the thing is, is it's a bit like Stockholm Syndrome, as in, yes, you know that it's wrong but also this is your life this is what's been your life for 30 years so that's all you know and you do just get brainwashed Mm -hmm. and we've seen you know when you mentioned controlled freedom some elements of controlled freedom that's it so that could be that they were allowed out to shops Mm -hmm. um on their own for example but they are so emotionally controlled that they wouldn't dream of kind of running away even though physically they could. Yeah. And I think, like, we saw that with Natasha Campos, who was, um, I can't remember who abducted her, uh, but she wrote a book, and she kind of talked mm-hmm. about times where she was given some freedom where she could go out and about, but she would, it would never have really occurred to her yeah. to seek help until the actual time that she finally did. And that's it, because you're also looking over your shoulder thinking, well, if they're watching me right now and I I try and escape, what's it going to be like? Is it going to be worse? I may as well just be good. And they might have been told all different things about the outside world, Mm -hmm. that it's a dangerous place, or that I've got people watching you. Exactly. You know, if you decide to kind of venture into the garden, I'm filming you, I know what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So finally, on the 21st of November, the Metropolitan Police from the Human Trafficking Unit were able to arrest 73-year-old Aravandin Balakrishnan, which I was like 73 years old and he's still that terrifying to these women, and his wife, who was 67-year-old Chanda Patani. So initially they were investigated for slavery and domestic servitude, and then they were bailed until April 2014, but they weren't allowed to be able to go back to the house because that was being searched and investigated. So Katie has since described her time, saying that she felt like a caged bird with clipped wings. She genuinely believed that the day that she left the house, she would explode, that her life would come to an end. But she also said that if she hadn't died from diabetes, which she was suffering from, she would have committed suicide because she just couldn't bear feeling like that anymore. She just didn't want to live like an animal anymore. So she seriously thinks that If she leaves the house, she'll explode, so she may as well kill herself. How horrific is that? On the 11th of December 2014, Balakrishan had been charged with offences relating to cruelty to a person under 16, four counts of rape, 17 counts of indecent assault. 
Chanda was released in 2014 as there was considered to be insufficient evidence for a realistic prospect of conviction. And then Balakrishan appeared before Westminster magistrates and his trial started on the 11th of November. During this trial, he was the only defence witness and he chatted a load of shit. You're going to love this. The court heard about how he told his followers he had godlike powers, so exactly as you said. He warned them about a supernatural force called Jackie. Oh my god, I don't believe it. Why would you call a supernatural force Jackie? Jackie... And I know someone called Jackie and I immediately think of Jackie. (laughs) And I'm like, Jackie's great, but she's not a supernatural force. Well no, it stands for Jehovah, Allah, Christ, Krishna and the immortal Ejwaran. So a load of fucking bollocks then. Mm, well, or your religious beliefs, if you believe in these things, Mark. Well, I've never heard of half of them. It's it's all gods, basically. Right, okay. So, like, Jehovah and Allah and Christ. I didn't even know Jehovah was It just was stands a god. for stuff. So, it's, it's basically God. Yeah. But he's called it Jackie. Um, and he said that this can cause natural disasters and pull your head from your body. He said it was an electronic satellite warfare machine. And he went on to claim that Jackie, which is also invisible, by the way, can um, cause things like the 1986 space shuttle disaster, the death of a Malaysian prime minister, and the leadership success of Jeremy Corbyn. Asked by defence barrister Adam Wiseman where the machine is, he said, I can't tell you because it might put you to sleep. And Mr Wiseman replied, it's a risk I'm prepared to bear. <laughs> Wouldn't tell them so, anyway. I mean, this guy's totally mentally ill. Oh my God, absolutely. Isn't that ridiculous? So he said in court, it controls everything. I can't control Jackie, but I can initiate. It's invisible for everyone, but it has been built by the Communist Party of China, the People's Liberation Army. It has unbelievable controls. Can you imagine if this thing, Jackie, is actually real? <laughs> and I'm and we're slagging the her stu- off. And we're the stupid ones and it's oh actually true. Yeah. Jackie exists and it caused all that kind of shit to happen. What a random selection of evidence, I like, though. I feel like I'm dreaming. This is so weird. <laughs> so Bethan. bizarre, isn't so it? So weird. So I feel bizarre. like I'm having a fucked up codeine and alcohol induced mm-hmm. dream. So anyway, on the 4th of December 2015... 4th of December being my birthday, don't forget. Who cares? Balakrishan was convicted of child cruelty, false imprisonment, four counts of rape, six counts of indecent assault and two counts of assault and then on the 29th of January 2016 was finally jailed for 23 years. That's a pretty decent sentence. Yeah. How long did he get for coming up with the world's shittest fucking name (laughs) of a fucking god? It's horrendous, isn't it? So, Detective Inspector Kevin Highland, who was leading the investigation that we heard from earlier, said that the women's alleged servitude was three times longer than anything seen before by police. He said, We have launched an extensive investigation into these very serious allegations. All three women were deeply affected and traumatised. Their lives were greatly controlled, and for much of the time, they would have been kept on the premises. So, the whole thing with this is they were just kept in that house. We don't know for definite, but whether Katie was born in that house or not. What it sounds like but, it. But, yeah, either she was born into a different house and then was moved yeah. to here, but this is where she spent most of her adult life. And it's, you know, when you were kind of talking about it early on, it sounded to me like they were on some kind of almost like commune, yeah. like a farm, you know, quite remote. But it sounds like actually we're talking about a normal kind of semi-detached house on it, a suburban yeah, street. exactly. Which is, you know, even worse. It People could, could have be your neighbours. Yeah, yeah, that's what makes it so disturbing, Exactly. I think, I think that is the thing with... All of this is it could happen next door to you. The people working on that farm or on the tarmacking business could be just down the road. It could be the the women who live next door. It could be the guys in the car wash. And that's what really shits me mm. up with this story. To or be the women doing your nails in a salon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Although my nail lady is my friend and I've been to her house a lot and I think she's okay. Okay. Just saying. So that brings us to the final case of the episode and it's a case that's been in the news very recently because the reporting restrictions have been lifted finally and it is the case that Emily sent to me. So a court case recently came to a close in which eight offenders were sentenced for crimes including trafficking, conspiracy to require another to perform forced labour and money laundering. Their sentences ranged from 3 to 11 years and are a result of a police investigation into around 400 victims who were put to work in the West Midlands by this organised crime gang. 
They tricked vulnerable people from Poland into England with the promise of work and a better life. And a similar way to Sandu, whose story we discussed earlier, the victims were made to live in rat-infested houses and work at menial jobs. So the eight offenders, who police say are members and associates of two Polish crime families, have been jailed after being convicted in two separate trials. What makes it almost worse is that it's Polish people kind of working against their own people. Yeah. So, you know, they're, they're Polish people living in the UK and then tricking fellow countrymen into yeah. the UK on false promises and then taking advantage of them. It's really find interesting that, that you've said that yeah. because um, I think it was the judge in the case actually said that that somehow... What, are you saying that I should be a judge? No. Oh. Just not even going to entertain that one. For... But no, I think that is such a good point. It is, point. isn't it? Yeah. In 2015, two of the people who had been captured and kind of kept hostage almost escaped and got help from a slavery charity called Hope for Justice. And finally now, reporting restrictions have been lifted and their tragic stories can be told. The group of five men and three women targeted the most desperate people from Poland, including the homeless, people with mental health issues, ex-prisoners and alcoholics. They ranged in age from 17 to a man in his 60s. And of the people that were brought over, there's only one woman that's known about. So generally, it was men that were brought over. They were promised a better life, so they travelled to the UK by bus. But then when they arrived, they were housed in squalid homes around West Bromwich, Smethwick and Walsall. Oh my God. I mean, if you think (laughs) things couldn't get any worse, it just did. Don't insult the listeners that we might have from those places, Mark. So they were forced to sleep up to four in a room on filthy mattresses, which I read somewhere looked like they'd been dragged in off the street, which just, ugh. Although they were paid, their wages were then taken from their bank accounts on payday, and they would go and open these bank accounts, but they were opened under duress, with the captors taking control of them straight away. One of the people said, the traffickers opened bank accounts in everybody's name with an address that they knew they could control, so even though they're even they're actually getting paid, they're still not seeing those wages. And I suppose it's almost so they've got like an audit trail. So if ever mm-hmm. these like kind of masterminds behind this whole operation were investigated, they can say, well, look, that you know, we've paid them a, a fair wage that's yeah. gone into their account. They've then withdrawn it as cash because they prefer to use cash. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that's kind of like the paper trail kind of ends then. So it looks yeah. legit. Luckily for proving against these people they had stacks of debit cards and were using stacks of cards that were in these different names and they were caught on cctv but absolutely the banks were also kind of duped into this because they thought they were doing things legally and they weren't at all it's estimated that the gang made more than two million pounds between june 2012 and october 2017 and they that kind of allowed them to lead a really lavish lifestyle They'd also kind of insert themselves into job agencies so that they could get the slave people into work. So the bank accounts were open. They had proper bank accounts. They quite often got proper jobs from a job agency and were being paid from that. But the whole time this was orchestrated by these captors. And the majority, I guess, of their wages were then being withdrawn and going to their captors. Yeah, they didn't so see that. Even though they were earning at least the minimum wage... They weren't, they weren't seeing, seeing most it. of that. And no. also, it's not just legitimate jobs that these people go into when they're brought over to this country. They quite often end up in brothels, for example, mm-hmm. um, in, in other kind of uh, sort of areas of on the fringes of crime, I suppose. Absolutely. And that was something that I could have just done. I'm going to do a whole nother episode on um, because that's just something else that just happens and it can be used as a threat or it can actually be legitimately something that they have to fear. And the I couldn't think of the right way to kind of put this in this episode when I was writing it. And the only way I could find it described in the papers was the slaves were made to do this. And it just doesn't sit right with me to say that. But at the same time, that is what they were at this point. They were made to work long days at really terrible jobs, and one of them was a turkey-gutting factory. Ugh. Some of them didn't sound like... I know people who work at the rubbish tip, and they had to work at the tip. But that is a hard job. It's a long job. They were given as little as £20 a week by their captors. 
One of the victims even said that he had to wash in a canal because he had no access to water. If any victims complained, the gang enforcers would humiliate, threaten or beat them. One victim was stripped naked in front of the other workers, doused in surgical chemical iodine and was told that the gang would remove his kidneys if he didn't keep quiet. When one of the victims died in captivity, the gang removed all of his personal belongings and identity documents so that their plot could not be discovered. So when the police found the body, they didn't know whose it was. Police video interviews with the escaped slaves capture their terror, and one after another they describe beatings, exploitation and humiliation. The only woman known to have been enslaved by the gang sat in the video with the police in a red parker. Her arms were clumped between her legs and she relates a trafficker's threat to her where he said, I will break your bones. She just says this really simply to the detectives and he also threatened to sell her into prostitution if she refused to comply. The slaves would be moved from house to house at short notice because then they'd be really disorientated and they were kept in around 32 different properties. Most of them spoke no English and had never travelled outside of Poland before. And as we saw earlier with the case of those Romanian men, the language barrier issues forced that person to feel more and more alone and more and more scared of the authorities. So one of the victims was a man called Marius. He was a former soldier who left Poland to come across to the UK due to troubles he was having with the police back home. He didn't have the money to travel, so when he was offered free travel to the UK, plus a job and a house once he was here he jumped at the opportunity. However, once he got to the UK, he was enslaved, robbed, beaten, starved and humiliated and he regretted his choices deeply. He said to BBC Panorama that if he had stuck it out as a soldier for just two more years, he could have received a pension. But because of the trouble he was having with the law, he thought this was his only chance. When Marius tried to complain to his captors, they turned violent and beat him, punching and kicking him, breaking his ribs. He then slept with a knife under his pillow just in case they came back again. Desperate to escape, he got a number for the Salvation Army Slavery Helpline. So what they do is they take calls from people that might need their help and they're trained to help people break free. So the woman told him what to do and he left the house and ran to the nearest police station where he was interviewed and then taken to a Salvation Army safe house. So the Salvation Army and the anti-slavery charity Hope for Justice work really closely with the police and Marius actually waived his legal right to anonymity just because he doesn't want other people to suffer as he did and so he was one of 66 witnesses who provided evidence to Birmingham Crown Court. One of the staff from the charity noticed that loads of men were turning up at the soup kitchen in West Bromwich with a really similar story to Marius so they began to rescue them one by one arranging rendezvous. All of these men were really terrified but luckily they'd all been helped and picked up. Some of the slaves were told that they were going to be taken to the woods to dig their own graves and one man who had an accident at work was forced back to the factory and denied hospital treatment which left him with long-term damage to his arm. They were kept under guard for weeks and basically everything they used would be added up so cigarettes, food etc. It was added to a tally and then they were kind of in debt from it all so they had no rights and the rooms were cramped and filthy And quite often the traffickers would give them loads of alcohol so it would make them even more sort of susceptible and compliant. And it ended up taking the police and the Crown Prosecution Service nearly four years to bring the case to trial. It's like really interesting what you're saying about, you know, like almost sort of itemised cigarettes, Mm -hmm. alcohol, blah de blah when I used to work at a bank, we would have people in from Eastern Europe that would open accounts and we would see their wage slips and we would see stuff like that. So I had no awareness wow. of it at the time, but we would see... So they would get paid. So say they were, like, picking fruit in a field. They would get paid, which was, like, a legitimate, um, mm-hmm. you know, minimum wage salary. But then you would see all these deductions on their pay slip. And I remember seeing things like deductions for... Uh, almost like social events, like where they'd gone bowling. And I mean, I never really looked at the amounts, but I wonder if they were, you know, being sort of like overcharged for even things like that. Wow. But, but yeah, it would have all these weird deductions and you just think, God, these guys are owned by their boss. Yeah. You know, they've got no choice if they want to go. If they don't want to go on a work social event, they've got no choice. They've got to go. Mm-hmm. And that is then deducted and itemised on their payslip. God, I was that's like, what? Horrendous. So weird. So I think with a lot of them, I do wonder actually now, now yeah. if they were uh, enslaved and being taken advantage of and that would have been around the time 
that like Polish people could come to the UK mm-hmm. uh, when, when it joined the EU. So wow, it was easier for them to come here, and they were, were were gagging to come here to to work. Well, yeah, so they were being easily told all of this they were vulnerable. Stuff. Yeah, they were easily taken advantage of. So the case um, was then heard at Birmingham Magistrates Court on November the 6th and November the 7th, 2018. And the people were then remanded into custody ahead of their next appearance on the 5th of December. So five members of the gang were convicted in February of this year. The judge at Birmingham Crown Court described the trafficking conspiracy as the most ambitious, extensive and prolific modern day slavery network ever exposed in the UK. Jurors had to consider evidence from 250,000 pages of evidence in the two cases, which lasted sort of about six months. And a total of 92 victims were identified, but the police believe at least 350 more were used by the gang. Either they couldn't be traced because they had left the country or they were just too scared to give evidence or perhaps they'd been killed. Can you imagine being on a jury for like oh my six God. months or even hearing three all months? Hearing of this. Like hearing it all, but just... That would become your life, then that becomes your full-time job. Yeah. I just, yeah, I mean, like, you'd have to have a really patient employer. And it was two cases, so they kind of had simultaneous cases. So it must be the same jury then, so it would have been six months. Lead prosecutor Caroline Howie QC described the investigation as the largest human trafficking case ever, and it is taking down a very large organised crime gang and gouging out its heart. More than 68 victims gave evidence or statements during the trial. Many have since returned home to Poland, but some did stay in the UK. So, again, with the names, I am hoping not to completely butcher these names. So, Juliana Chadowicz, Marek Borinsky, Marek Chadowicz, Justina Parcheska and Natalia Munda were sentenced to a total of 35 years, which is a record for a human trafficking case. They were jailed for between four and a half years and 11 years. So Marek and the other Marek were both jailed for 11 and nine years, respectively, for trafficking, conspiracy to require another person to perform forced labour and money laundering. They said that Marek was the respectable face of the gang, playing a convincing role in the banks and the employment agencies. And... One of the people in this actually absconded during the trial whilst wearing an electronic tag. So it was quite a big thing. But none of this was reported, I guess, because they needed to get to the end of this. The other Marek travelled to Poland to recruit victims. And then Justina was kind of described as having a matriarchal role. So she'd welcome the new arrivals and make them cups of tea and get them food knowing full well what horrors were going to come ahead. I sort of knew you were going to say something like that because it's quite unusual to have a female in a gang like that. And I thought there must be a reason for it and it must be because she's female they're using characteristics that you would typically identify with a female of that kind of maternal sort of approach to almost lull them in. Mm -hmm. I just knew you were going to say that. Exactly. So of the eight people, um, well, there's only five in this court case and there's another three men, but of the eight, People, three of them were women and they were... Three, yeah. So that's, they obviously so recruited Juliana, Justina and Natalia, that. yeah. Yeah. And then in the second trial, there were a further three men. So they were Ignacy Bretskinski, Jan Sadowski and Wolaszek Norowski. So they were found guilty of modern slavery offences. Um, so Jan Sadowski actually admitted his part, his part in it all on the first day of the trial... So he was sentenced to three years, whereas the other two were sentenced to 11 years and six and a half years. So I think his admitting it helped him Massively, yeah. So basically, um, Wojciech and Jan would meet the arrivals in the UK and then they would kind of escort them to the job centre appointments and stuff, along with Natalia. So they would then control the bank accounts and between them, this it was very, very clever. And they would basically greet these people, make them feel like they were really welcome, get them set up, and then suddenly it would just turn into this horror sort of story for them. Ignacy Brensky is still on the run at the moment. So in his absence from the trial, because he ran while he was wearing his electronic tag, he has been jailed for 11 years, but they're still looking for him. But really, how is a tag going to stop you doing a runner? 
It's not going to stop you doing a runner, but they should be able to track you. Oh, well, yeah, that's true. But he's but obviously then, got it off somehow. Oh, yeah, he would have been able to, yeah. Yeah, so he's still on the run. And and obviously this is something that's only just been finalised, so hopefully he's caught soon. The judge praised the meticulous detective work of police who had analysed 650,000 lines of telephone data, 250 bank accounts, more than 3,000 exhibits and 1,500 witness statements. They'd also obtained 10 interim slavery and trafficking risk orders against the gang. And basically, I was trying to work out what this meant, but it's a, if you, it's almost like breaking your bail condition. So if you then continue with the behaviours. And Wojciech and then also Ignacy breached those conditions and they are the first people in the UK who have been jailed using that legislation of slavery and trafficking risk orders. So it's quite a new thing as well. After the trial, Detective Chief Inspector Nick Dale, um, head of West Midlands Police's Gangs and Organised Crime Unit, said that the gang members showed no remorse. He said the defendants sat in court listening to evidence. There was no recognition of what they'd done or contrition. They were exploiting anything up to 250 people in that community at any one time. The evidence of the victims was extremely impactive. This was trafficking and exploitation on a massive scale. The gang treated these people, their fellow countrymen, as commodities purely for their own greed. What they did was abhorrent. They subjected their victims to a demi-life of misery and poverty. So an hour-long BBC Panorama programme will be broadcast later this year because Panorama have been following this for the last couple of years and the story does continue to unfold. But what I found most shocking about this and all the other cases in today's episode is these people are being taken advantage of in a horrendous manner and yet we're living in what we think is quite an enlightened time. Yeah, I do, I do agree with that. I think, but it's also a bit like when they say there is no poverty in this country, but actually there is like horrific poverty. Yeah, absolutely. It's just that it's not necessarily in your neighbourhood if you happen to live in quite a nice part of the country. Or you don't know it's in or, your yeah, neighbourhood. Yeah, or it's just hidden. It's like, yeah. it's really hidden. So I think, I think it's really naive of us to think in this country that actually we live in a country where everybody has equal opportunities and a great life. You know, we certainly don't, we like us, I would say, take quite a lot for granted. Mm -hmm. Um, We're really lucky in terms of the lives we have, but there are people that literally have to make that decision between electricity or food every single day. Absolutely. And I know that's slightly different, but I'm just kind of trying to compare that it doesn't really surprise me because I think this country is not as good as people think. No. I did want to finish the kind of roundup of the cases with the following quote that kind of gave me some hope. So Detective Sergeant Michelle O'Renz, Deputy Senior Investigating Officer on this case, said, Many have returned to Poland and have really turned their lives around. They have proper jobs and are working and earning and have families and a good outlook on life. Some have remained in the UK and are functioning members of society. And I thought after all this has come out, I'm so happy for those people that actually they still can and want to live in the UK and yeah, have that life. Says a lot. <laughs> but I, I um I also hope that they actually got compensation under the, like the Criminal Injuries mm-hmm. Act and you know, that money would go quite far back in Poland. Yeah. I'm not being patronising saying that, it really no, would. I think and they so. absolutely would have deserved that money. So I Even really if it's hope... just the wages that they should have been paid in a lump yeah. sum that's gonna be a huge But they amount. should have got several thousand for, for what so. they went through. So it'll be really interesting to perhaps, um, once some more details have come out about this case, do another follow-up, like a mini-sode or something, just to follow up on this. Um, And maybe some of the information about what's happened from that. And um, Yeah, I really look forward to that panorama Mm. documentary later in the year to learn more about it. It's kind of whetted my appetite for this in the right way, just that I want to know more about it and what to kind of look out for, really. Definitely. So I wanted to end the episode with a bit of information for everybody. So as one of her last acts as Prime Minister, Theresa May is promising money to help Ooh. end... Well, yeah. Piss off, love. But she is promising to help to send money to help end modern That's slavery good. in the UK. That's good. She wants to focus on the more than 10,000 people in the UK estimated to be living in domestic servitude or having been trafficked for sex at the moment. So the Modern Slavery Act 2015, introduced by her before she became Prime Minister, brought together existing offences all into one law. So that was what you were talking about earlier. 
and it did create new duties and powers to protect victims and prosecute offenders. There was a new defence for victims of slavery and trafficking who have been forced to break the law because they have no other rights. Um, and I thought that was really important. I thought, actually, yeah, if you're breaking... If you're kind of stealing food or something, but it turns out that you've been trafficked, fair enough, like, let mm -hmm. them get away with yeah. that. Um, and it gave more power for the police to stop boats where they suspected trafficking and the courts could hand down a maximum life sentence for offenders. It also required businesses with an annual turnover of at least £36 million to publish an annual statement setting out the steps that they have taken to prevent modern slavery within their supply chains. However, whilst this is all really positive, there are quite a few things on the flip side. So there's no direct penalties for um, businesses not complying with the law. There's a loophole allowing businesses to just produce a statement to say, we've done nothing and that's still what compliant. That's ridiculous, isn't <laughs> yeah. it? Yeah. And then once someone's been confirmed to be a victim of slavery, their nationality and immigration status can affect what happens with the support that they receive while their case is being processed and what happens to them afterwards. That's awful. We should treat yeah. them all equally exactly. and fairly. So I think whilst she has tried to start doing some good Just things... Just classic Theresa May. She had good intentions and she's fucked it up. Bless her. She is a bit shit, isn't she? Stupid bitch. But anyway, we're not a political programme... I do think it's really important that these steps are being taken. Of course it is. So finally, what can we do to help? So things to look out for are people who appear frightened or withdrawn around others may have signs of physical abuse and may be nervous of authority figures, especially the police. Their clothing and general hygiene may be bad too. And if you're worried about someone, the main advice is not to make a scene or confront them, but instead call the Modern Slavery Helpline or go online and make a report. And then that way, the right people can look into it and potentially help that person. And the right people can look into it in the right way exactly. as well. If I turn up at the car wash and start kicking off, it's not going to do anyone any no, favours. No, you don't know what the consequences for those individuals might be. Exactly. They'll just be moved, most likely, to mm -hmm. another part of the country, to another car wash, and they'll never be able to be helped. Yeah, and especially like with those women in the house, you don't know how deeply affected they are, how long they've been in this situation... So actually they may not want your help straight away, but speaking to someone like... Who is trained You know, like the Salvation Army or people, something, yeah. who can actually go and help. Yeah. So there we go. Um, quite a heavy one. Mm, yeah, it got kind of like more intense as it went yeah. on, really. Um, but yeah, really powerful case and hopefully... Something I've not really ever thought something. about a lot, yeah. I've not really, but I know that it's definitely become more prominent mm -hmm. uh, probably since that Modern Slavery Act yeah. came in. I remember having to kind of do some learning at work around that. Yeah. Um, like you say, all companies had to adhere to it. Mm -hmm. So I remember, yeah, I remember becoming aware of it then and thinking, well, like, seriously, we do not have slaves in this country. Yeah. But we absolutely do. But we absolutely do, yeah. So thank you very much for listening, guys. We know it was a bit of a long one, as the it actress was. said to the Fisher. Oh, crikey. <laughs> Um, so thank you for joining us and as always get in touch with us and let us know what your thoughts are on the case and um, if there's anything that you wanted to talk about or discuss we've got the Facebook group, Instagram and Twitter so get in touch or you can email us as well and if you've been personally affected by this story today's case then we would just encourage you to reach out to the relevant yeah, definitely. there's loads of ways you can have a look, have a look online and have a look at some of the links and See what, what help there is and support. Yeah. Absolutely. Thanks for listening, guys. Until next time. Bye. Bye.